Coming to you from my house in Los Angeles, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So they call it a man-on-the-street interview, Vox Pop, Vox Populi. You've seen it a hundred times. A reporter goes out onto a busy sidewalk, asks passers-by what they think of the president or the economy or a dress somebody wore on an awards show, and then, voila, they have a news package. And maybe a hundred more times you've seen that idea used for comedy, maybe on The Daily Show or Jay Leno doing jaywalking or Eric Andre. I could obviously go on. Coil and Sharp basically invented that genre of comedy back in the early 1960s, and they pretty much perfected it, too. These two guys, Jim Coyle and Mal Sharp, would walk the streets of San Francisco in conservative suits with a tape recorder. Sometimes it was hidden in a briefcase, sometimes it was out in the open, and they'd approach people with usually an absurd proposition, like Let's rob a bank together, or you should rent your child to a stranger, or let's become one person, the three of us. I first read about Coil and Sharp many years ago in the beloved countercultural zine Research. Uh, they made a book about pranks, and Coil and Sharp were the highlight of it. They were cult heroes. One of their records was reissued by Henry Rollins. They were beloved on the legendary freeform radio station WFMU, but they weren't very well known outside of the folks who'd listened to them on the radio in the early 1960s. It was an incredible story. Mal Sharp was basically a San Francisco bohemian. Jim Coyle was maybe an actual con man. Even Mal didn't seem to be entirely sure what his story was. Their work predated the 60s as we think of the 60s now. I mean, they weren't hippies. They were, I mean, you could see Mal around town in a beret from time to time if you're wondering what kind of guy he was. But it was a world before people were on the lookout for someone acting crazy and tricking them. And so these really straight people would get roped into these insane schemes. I mean, truly mad schemes. I think because their radio show was daily, they just had to generate a huge amount of insanity. And the more insanity you make, the more insane your insanity gets. What they ended up with was something that was almost avant-garde in its total madness. Again, long before the 60s were the 60s. I remember the first time I listened to their recordings, and what blew me away was that something that was then 40 years old could feel so vividly hilarious, but also like it was from another world. I mean, I was born and raised in San Francisco, and I was not born and raised in this San Francisco. Mal went on to become a Bay Area broadcasting and advertising legend. He had a public television show in San Francisco. He had a band that played regular gigs in North Beach. He had a public radio show playing hot jazz on KCSM in San Mateo. He was a bon vivant of North Beach. But at the time, I didn't know any of that stuff. I was just listening through a hole in time to the craziest thing I had ever heard in my life. 
Anyway, I was doing college radio at the time, and somehow I found Mal Sharp's email address. It was an AOL address. I think he kept that AOL address through his life. And I sent him an email and invited him onto my college radio show. He was already an older guy, but he was glad to do it. He was always glad to talk about his work with Coil and Sharp. He was very proud of it. And it was an incredible conversation. In fact, I think it may have literally been the first interview I ever did in my life. Anyway, the reason we're talking this week about Coil and Sharp is that Mal passed away a couple of months ago at the age of 83. It was a great loss for comedy and for the Bay Area alternative culture community, especially in North Beach. Um, But enough time has passed now that I feel like I can remember him as the bright, genial light in my life and in the lives of so many others that he was. Anyway, here is a little bit of one of the greatest coil and sharp bits of all time. This was not a hidden microphone. This was the two of them with a portable recording kit that was uh, like the size of a backpack. And they walk up to somebody on the street. This is someone they've never met before in their lives. They always said, that they like to go to Union Square in San Francisco and look for people wearing long wing shoes uh, because they were the most likely to be serious and credulous. This is Mal Sharp with another in the series, Job Opportunities. Every day I bring an employer out onto the street and have him offer a San Franciscan an interesting and novel job. Now I have James P. Coyle with me our employer of the day, and I've just stopped a young man who we're going to offer a job to. I am James T. Coyle, and I'm very glad to meet you. Same here. The nature of the job is it's a little unusual, just like anything else, there are certain risks entailed in it. You would be working down in a pit uh, in which I have created, uh, through scientific endeavor, I have created intense flame. People throw objects in the flaming pit, you go through, you pick them up, uh, they name the object, you pick them up, and uh, I charge them admission. Yeah, I, I think I'd be interested. It's something new and exciting, you know, and I like exciting. The reason I ask, I had an employee before, and I will tell you this directly and honestly, uh, he was a little careless and incautious. I gave him specific instructions, and he perished. Now, I want you to understand this before we get any further. He oh, did yeah. perish. I understand. Well, it's, mistakes can happen sometimes. Now, as I understand it, the death index on this job, they give us a death index is about 98%. In other words, if you took this job, the chance of your actual perishing would be 98% in favor of your perishing. It's a chance. I like to take chances. What we're trying to do really is to create a living hell. Have, have people pay admission. They look down in the pit. They see you down there. The flames are all around you. There will be four maniacs with you, and you've got to control them. Now, wait a minute. I understand that you said four maniacs? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you mean I got to tell them what to do or try to keep them together or something like that? Yes, exactly. Control them and see that they don't interfere with you because they will. That's what they're going to try and do. Uh They're fully costumed. They're fully protected and they're going to be attacking you. And, uh, this is part of the attraction. Oh, I see. It sounds very interesting. Have you worked with maniacs before? No, never. Have you worked with flame before? No, not necessarily. One other uh, aspect, large bats fly through the air. You've seen bats, haven't yeah. you? These are very large bats with 
uh, I might say, extremely large teeth from the photo I saw. They'll be swooping down over your head. Would the bats at all deter you from doing your job? No, I don't think so. If I had a job to do, I'd try to do it regardless of the bats or anybody else. Now, I am, I'll explain the situation. To start with, I want to be sure you can handle a job. I am paying $46 a week uh, initially. Uh, is this agreeable? Sounds okay. And I am offering uh, not only the $46, but during the 12 hours that you'll be down in the pit every day, I will provide nourishment to you. In other words, I will provide one meal during that 12-hour period. Will that be satisfactory? Sounds okay. Have you ever consumed bats? No, I haven't. Would you look forward to the idea of actually consuming uh, bats? Eating what? Yes. I guess so. In other words, your lunch. You go down and open up your little brown paper bag that Mr. Coyle had prepared, and inside there, there would be a bat, and then you would just prepare it down in the flames. Oh, I had to cook it myself? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Why? Oh, no, I... Well, I could, if you could cook it for me, I wouldn't mind eating it, but, you know, right. a bat. Yeah. But as long as I didn't see it cooking, you know, I think I could devour it. Have you ever had any experience with snakes, large snakes? No. See, the bats, uh, the bats, actually, they're foes down in this pit. The reason why the bats are there is because there are snakes in the pit. Uh -huh. The bats attack the snakes and the snakes will be curling around your feet as you're trying to handle the maniacs. Yeah, I'm now, not scared of snakes, though. What? I'm not scared of snakes. Are you at all, and be honest, are you at all afraid of the maniacs? No, not really. What are you going to do with them if they start attacking you? Fight them off. And this is what the people pay for. Uh -huh. The people who are looking down in the pit pay to see you surrounded by flames, uh -huh. picking up objects that they throw down to you. You're, you'll be attacked by the maniacs and the bats. The snakes will be crawling at your feet. This, you understand, this is what the people pay for. Yeah. Well, it's, they pay to see it. Uh, give them their money's worth. Now, do you, uh, what I'd like to know is that you fully understand the job. Can you, in your own way, recapitulate what I've told you about the job so that we know that you do have an understanding of it? Yeah, it seems to me you want me to uh, work in uh, some kind of a pit. As you say, you're trying to develop a living hell. And uh, in this pit, I wear some sort of a uniform, and it'll be a lot of flames. And uh, I have to work with uh, maniacs and watch out for bats flying around. And uh, I'll get one meal a day. I'll be in there for 12 hours, and I'll have to eat a bat. <laughs> and you will take the position. Yeah, I, I like to try. That was Coyle and Sharp interviewing a passerby for a job working with maniacs in a living hell. I'm going to play a little bit of my first ever interview with Mal Sharp now. This was one of the first, uh, one of the first interviews of any kind, certainly for broadcast, that I had ever done in my life. This is 2002, we think according to the labels on the CDR where we found it. Uh, I was in college. Uh, my show was called The Sound of Young America back then and uh, was co-hosted by my friend Jordan Morris, with whom I still podcast today, and our friend Gene O'Neill. So you'll hear their voices as well. Mal was calling in to Santa Cruz, KZSC, the heavyweight 88, from uh, his home in Berkeley. So I think the question that leaps immediately to mind is, 
if you're uh, if you're living in Lyndon B. Johnson's America, yeah, um, how how does it come to your mind that what you're going to do for a profession is walk around with a hidden microphone, or in this case, I suppose, a non-hidden microphone? Well, you know, probably much like you three folks there. You know, you kind of get out of school, you're desperate for something to do, but you don't want to have a real job, you know? I said a sense that you guys aren't going to pursue normal. Boy, Maybe he, you are. He surely has us pegged. <laughs> I was, I was Especially playing. you, Eugene. Oh. No. <laughs> I just kind of want a job where I don't have to wear pants. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man, it's so true. I'm a total you know, bum. So, I mean, Coyle and I, I mean, I met this guy, Coyle, you know, he loved to put people on, you know, and I'd hang out with him here in San Francisco, and... and and we kind of went back to New York, and, you know, he he just couldn't stop putting people on. And so I had a little broadcasting background. I mean, that's what I'd done in school. So I could run a tape recorder. He couldn't. So we decided to see if we could just do this and make a living at it, you know, which uh, which uh, instead of taking jobs. And, uh, and so we put about three years of time walking around San Francisco accumulating sequences like this before we finally got a record contract and then a show on KGO. What were you doing in the meantime while you were uh, spending all your time walking around San Francisco with a tape recorder? Uh, eating a lot of peanut butter sandwiches. I, I played trombone in a Dixieland band on Broadway in North Beach, and I made $7 on Saturday night. I, can, I don't know how I... I really don't know how I survived, you know. Things were a lot cheaper then. You know, we're talking about 1961 or something, you know. So your rent was about 60 bucks, and, you know, sometimes, lo and behold, mom's check showed up, you know, or something... I don't know. You know, it was a, it was one of those things where you just uh, um, give it all up to try and do some crazy thing. You know that, uh, that you you know you're on a mission. I can't explain it. You know, when, when you were um, when you were setting out to do this, what? How did you formulate uh, the ideas uh, that you used in your interviews? Well, you know, like that one there. We. I mean, we would get up in the morning, we'd meet in some coffee shop, like in North Beach in San Francisco, and we would, uh, we would premisize, we would come up with ideas. But a lot of it was just conceptualizing. You know, you'd look around the room and you'd see a clock on the wall, you'd, you know, we'd write down in our envelope, uh, be a human clock, you know, and we would just need a note like that, be a human clock or, uh, or uh, um, tree head or, or uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Um, coffee instead of blood, you know, and then we would stop people on the street and we would have this list of things and and um you know you know we would say, well, um, have you ever thought of being a tree you know, and then the person would start talking to us, and then we would just kind of extemporize and some of the things like that thing we just heard was a kind of common theme. We were constantly trying to get people down in pits with animals and fighting and you know killing birds and ravens attacking them, and you know just. So, so, you know, once we got off in that direction, you know, each of us would just, uh, it was good there were two of us because we could kind of pile things on one after another and think of stuff, you know, as we were there. So this whole, this whole thing didn't, ex this whole business of Coil and Sharp didn't yeah. last for an exceptionally long time, correct? Right. Now, you've still managed to not have regular jobs for the rest of your life. Yeah. So can you tell us about those not regular jobs? <laughs> Well, you know, Coyle, Coyle and I, yeah, we've kind of crashed and burned. You know, we went down to Hollywood, and I mean, that's a whole story. But we did a television pilot and sell, and then, I, I don't know. We, we kind of split up. I got a job uh, writing, uh, kind of producing and creating very creative radio commercials down in Hollywood. It 
was a really interesting job. But I kept getting calls for these man on the street things, especially from commercials. And um, so finally I could make enough money doing that. So I was kind of off on this man on the street thing again, but without coil. And uh, without him, I wasn't so much into the put-on stuff. It was more just kind of using real people on the street and kind of having fun with them in a way. I mean, it was it was a slightly different approach. But um, So I did a lot of that, and I did a lot of short films when I lived in L.A. and and um, just kind of freelance things. And then I moved back to San Francisco in 79, and I just kept getting commercials. And then I went to work for KMEL, the Camel, it was then called, a rock and roll station, as a as like a man on the street reporter. And they sent me to things like Super Bowls and political conventions. It was a great job. Well, how do you feel about this sort of cult status that your work has only just very recently achieved through some sort of, I mean, I know you had some sort of connections with uh, WFMU, which is a famous uh, freeform radio station yeah. in New York, and uh, or actually specifically in New Jersey. I mean, how, how does that feel to you to have had records that have, you know, they sold 15,000 copies apiece, and you are a popular radio personality in San Francisco, but now all of a sudden you've gained some sort of underground national prominence. Well, you know, I, I don't really feel that way, you know. For me personally, I don't walk around feeling like I'm finally arrived or anything. It's just kind of weird, you know, guys like you call up, you know what I mean? You know, it's not like, it's not like you know, um, Inside Edition, you know, and Oprah or ringing my bell every day you know it's kind of actually people call us the oprah of santa cruz the, the collective oprah yeah each of us each of us combined with the other two makes oprah yeah exactly 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 it says oprah on my driver's license yeah right yeah you, get just that you, and, you know so i don't know i mean it's nice to to to, to um have this stuff kind of recognized and among certain kinds of people it's it, you know it's nice to know that like the writers for the the Saturday Night Live or something like that they know about the stuff you know that you know the actual people on the street most Americans I, I don't think we have a lot of top head awareness but I mean after so many years I mean the stuff sat in my basement for like thirty years until I got this call from Henry Rollins you know about six years ago and and Henry was really the guy who um, reissued the first Coil and Sharp CD. Uh, that kind of brought it all back, you know, in a way. Well, let's hear one more piece. Uh, we're we're almost out of time, but we'll hear one more piece. Okay. Hi there. Sir. So you're a painter. Do you uh, can you give us an estimate of uh, what a particular job would be, what it would cost? It's about a two-story house. I'm not a painter. I'm a printer. It's uh, printing. It's down, it's a, 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 not too far from here, about five blocks away. I don't do any painting. No, it's a, a, you misunderstand. It's not a huge building. It's a small, it's a duplex uh, type structure right here in the neighborhood. And we have the color scheme laid out. I don't do printing. You don't do printing. I'm a, I mean, I don't do painting. Painting. You, you want a painter? Wait, you yeah. don't do printing. Yeah. We don't want any printing at all. Well, I don't we have no desire. You said you don't do printing. Well, I, yeah. you're getting me all yeah. confused, yeah. too. Half of the building is concrete, and they said to us a few years ago when we got it, don't worry, you know, these things last. You're not that near the ocean. And all the paint is starting to chip off uh, the front of the building now, and it really, you know, it's beginning to go to the devil. concerns me. I well, let me explain. Well, it hasn't been at all resistant to uh, yeah. the elements. I don't do painting. No, I'm we a don't. printer. 
Could you come down, let's say, in an afternoon, just give us an appraisal? I don't even do that kind of you thing. Don't I have do nothing to do with paint or painting houses or anything. I print on paper. What do you paint? I don't paint anything. I don't know where you got the idea. It says print shop up here. It doesn't say paint shop. What is the chance of your printing the place if you don't do paint? That's all ridiculous. I don't do anything with houses or anything like that. I print on paper, envelopes, letterheads, business cards. Well, could you send, uh, what do you have, assistance? I have nothing to do with painters. Oh, I see. You have assistance. I'm not even interested in painting. Oh, all right. Would you be able to come down... Uh, Oh, sometime tomorrow afternoon just to get an idea of what it would be like? Well, there's nothing to do with printing on it, is there? There would be printing. What are you going to print the house, you said? No, N-O, capital letters. I'm a printer. I'm not a painter. Please don't demand it. That's one of my favorite pieces. We really bugged that guy. Thanks for coming on the show. This is the best interview I've ever been involved with. I really appreciate you guys. Wow, and this. you've interviewed a lot of crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it went so, I think it went so well because we're all drunks. <laughs> <laughs> Your show sounds perfect. I mean it really and truly. I think it just sounds great. I think this kind of radio is disappearing, and I hope you guys stay at it. Mal Sharp from 2002. We have another interview with Mal and even more comedy from Coyle and Sharp coming up after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Judge Don Hodgman won a Webby in the comedy podcast category. After 10 years of production, Judge John Hodgman has finally won the Susan Lucci of the Webbies. What is Judge John Hodgman? Comedy writer and television personality John Hodgman settles disputes between friends, family, co-workers, partners, and more. Is Machine Gun a robot? Should a grown adult tell his parents about his tattoos? Should a family be compelled to wear matching outfits on vacation? Listen to Judge John Hodgman to find out the answers to these age-old disputes and more. If you haven't listened to Judge John Hodgman, now is a great time to start. Judge John Hodgman is available on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's all close our eyes, take a deep breath, let it out, and listen to NPR's All Songs Considered. It's a music podcast, but it's also a good friend and guide to find joy in troubled times. Hear All Songs Considered with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week we're doing something a little different. We're looking back at the work of Coil and Sharp. They were a comedy duo who recorded a series of hilarious and bizarre man-on-the-street put-ons in the 1960s. Jim Coyle died in 1993. Mal Sharp, who was a friend of mine, died this past March. He was 83. I got to interview Mal twice for my show. We're about to hear another one with him. But before we do that, I want to play another bit of Coyle and Sharp. This bit is another classic. They find a random guy on the street and they approach him with a pretty straightforward proposition. Are you willing to give up being an individual and to join Coil and Sharp to become one collective person. They say that they call this belief threeism. Excuse me. Can we sure. take a moment of your time? Sure. What we'd like to do is acquaint you with the concept of threeism. Are you familiar with this? Pardon me? Threeism. Threeism? No, I'm not. Three people get together and merge your identity as one. Would you ever consider giving up your identity as an individual to be a third of one person? Is this a religious, religious concept? 
No, no, it's just a spiritual uh, idea that we have conceived with some other people. Uh, I'd have to know more about it. We give you a demonstration of threeism? Uh, right now? Yes. Well, I'm kind of in a hurry. I have an appointment at 7 o'clock and I haven't eaten yet. Could we accompany you to your meal and show you how threeism will work? We will help you make the selection of your food? There is nothing we will do that will not be a unit decision. Wait a minute now, that's two against one for me eating at my place. The dinner's ready. We are you want all the dinner at my place? Yes, we uh, could eat dinner at your home. And can I ask you, what are we having for dinner? I don't know yet. And how will you introduce us to whoever else is in the house? Well, how am I supposed to introduce us? How would you introduce us? Yeah, these are two-thirds of my personality. Would you do it on a permanent basis? Well, I for the rest of my life? Right, exactly. We're asking you to make that decision now. You're asking me to make the decision right now? Yes. Well, I kind of, I decline. No, 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 there are three of us right now. If we could stay together, it would be so much better. Let us go away as one, now. No more personal decisions on your, on your own part. Hey, what's wrong while you're walking away? I told you, I'd change your mind. No, you're walking away. Why you walked away? What did you say we were? I don't want to be a threeist. You said we're out of our minds. And you know, it's just because you don't understand a concept you've never been exposed to. What are you doing? Uh, Getting an officer? No, I'm looking for the bus. Let's go on the what bus together. What are we together. trying to railroad you into? I don't Tell know. us. That's your concept, a better life. You're turning down an opportunity for threeism? You are in our destiny. How you do are. Know who you told are. you that? You are the tertiary person, the triad. It's an awareness of the meaning and the destiny of threeism. Who thought up this threeism? We, we did. did. When did this begin? Last week. We'll tell you honestly. It came to us, and we accept it. Here's my, here's our, here's my buzz. Right, we're going with you. May we go with you? We haven't eaten. We <laughs> haven't eaten in a long time. Neither have I. Now we're getting on the bus with the gentleman. Are you going to play the fair, sir? I got 15 cents. Now we're walking down the aisle of the bus with the triad person. Could we stand together as a triad here in the bus? I'm tired. <laughs> now, isn't this, isn't this the first example of threeism? Right. Suddenly, instead of yourself alone getting on the bus, there are three of us on the bus, right? <laughs> isn't that isn't true? That, that's true. And we're riding to your home? Yeah. What bus is this? Six Masonic. And it, is it so bad? Is it so bad? Well, there's a lot of people on the bus. But there's three of us together on the bus. This guy's as close to me as you are. He didn't speak with us. We haven't chosen him as a threeist. Oh, you've chosen me. You have come into our destiny, and you shall remain as thus forth, henceforth from the Six Masonic bus to your home, and forevermore you shall be with us. Is that not true? Answerest thou to thy triad companions waiting for thy answer? No. Can we tell you something? Yeah. This is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That was Coyle and Sharp pitching threeism to a hapless passerby. It appeared on their album Audio Visionaries, Street Pranks, and Put-Ons. The second time I talked with Mal Sharp on the show was 2006. Mal had recently put out a box set featuring threeism, which you just heard, and a bunch of other stuff. After Mal was on the show that first time, we would check in with each other over email every once in a while. He was just that kind of guy. Not just, uh, not just like a, a, an all-American dad type, but also someone who was curious about what people were up to. I think his curiosity was what made him such a great man-on-the-street interviewer. 
he and his daughter, Jennifer, had done the work of digitizing their huge archive of Coil and Sharp recordings. And at the dawn of podcasting, they had been kind enough to share them with me so that I could make a podcast out of them. It was not a... <laughs> A particular money-making proposition. They were glad to get a little promo for the box set that Mal had put together. And it is a great box set, by the way. Uh, and I was glad to have a little content to make into a podcast because podcasts were new and we just did whatever we thought was a thing, you know, and I thought it was something. Anyway, let's get into my 2006 interview with Mal Sharp. Mal, welcome to welcome back to The Sound of Young America. How are you? Great. So um, what I want let's let's do this a, a little bit chronologically. Uh, before you were in Coil and Sharp, before you met uh, James P. Coyle, what were you doing with your life? You were you were graduated from school and, and you'd moved out to the Bay Area. Yeah, I'd had like six months to kill uh, because of uh, it's unfashionable to say this now, but I had to go in the army. I'd been in. ROTC in college because I didn't want to be an enlisted man and run through, you know, fields in Korea, unfortunately. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, and and so I was I went out to San Francisco. There was kind of this beat generation scene going on out there, and um, I really didn't know anything about the Bay Area or anything. I just kind of borrowed some money from some loan company in in Lansing, Michigan, and flew across America and arrived in. San Francisco, kind of a blank slate. Did you say borrowed some money from some loan company? Yeah, the Eagle Loan Company in Lansing, Michigan. Now, you know, I got money to get an a, a ticket on a Boeing 707. This is like, was this like a company advertising loans for uh, potential beatniks or something? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, fly beatniks going to San Francisco? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Beatnik, yeah, come in, you know, 4%, you know, per year. Yeah. We'll invest in your career in performance yeah. poetry. Right. Yeah, anyhow, I don't know. I needed the money, and I borrowed it from this loan company and flew out to San Francisco, and that was it, you know. What what, what were you doing when you first... Well, first of all, how, how old were you? At, I don't know. I was about point? 22 or 23. I got a job in Macy's, you know, as uh, Mr. Sharp in the sporting goods department, and um, and kind of just, you know, looking around, you know. On the road, in my own way, I guess. A lot of people were on the move then and, uh, and heading west, out to the west coast. This was still, this was still in the 50s, right? Is this like 50, 58 well, or something 59, like that? Yeah, that I, yeah, that I came out to San Francisco. What was the city like in, in, in that time? Well, you know, it was before the hippies. And kind of the beatnik thing was going on, but that was kind of in certain parts of town, North Beach. San Francisco was kind of a a simple, we were just talking about this the other day, there was still this kind of naivete to San Francisco. It wasn't in any way like a hip or big league city. You know, if you wanted to really do anything, you had to leave here and go to L.A. or New York. All the advertising agencies had, you know, little accounts. Um, but all this stuff was bubbling under in San Francisco, you know, the whole Lenny Bruce, uh, Mort Saul thing and the Kingston trio and, uh, and, uh, Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond, all that stuff was, was kind of going on in this very kind of sunny, foggy, innocent atmosphere in a way. It was kind of a breeding ground, I guess, but you know, somehow you didn't even 
know it that much. You know, it, things didn't have that kind of media buzz, like, whoa, there's a happening place or anything. It was just kind of a sleepy place in a way. So how did you end up meeting Jim Coyle? Well, you know, you could, uh, uh, I didn't have much money, and you could move into these, uh, you know, they were called residence clubs. They were like boarding houses. Um, that even that term's probably gone now from the American psyche. But they were like these mansions that have been turned into these rooming houses for young people. And uh, you could move in, and for about 80 bucks a month, you got a little room, you know, one of these old San Francisco mansions that were fantastic, but they almost were in disuse. So you could have a room and uh, two meals a day uh, for about 80 bucks a month, which was a great deal. And uh, and kind of lead your life instead of renting an apartment, which would have been a hundred and forty dollars a month, you know. And uh, Jim Coyle was was living there as well. Yeah, I went down to supper one night, and uh, sat at you'd sit at you know sit down at some table, and I don't know he was going on and on. He was telling these two young women about uh, he was belonged to some religion or something like that, and they went out to. Marin on the weekend, and they would lay on these rocks in the sun like turtles or something and commune with nature and the sun. I don't know. Some weird thing. And I said, what is this guy up to? This is such... But he was so convincing, and these girls' jaws were dropping, you know. And I mean, I was kind of convinced by him, too, you know. But I, I was also intrigued and went up to his room where he was reading Bruckner and Mahler. I mean, listening to Bruckner and Mahler on his record player reading Nietzsche. It would probably be even more impressive if he was just sitting around reading Mahler. Yeah, right. The score. <laughs> or he had Mahler frozen and he was... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like one of the things that I was thinking of as I was watching the, uh, the DVD that's included in this yeah. set is that the credulousness of Jim Coyle, he's so sincere that it's almost like there's almost like something terrifying about it. At least there was for me. Like I was like, whoa, like this is weird. Yeah, Jim, he's kind of a conventional looking guy. But he 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 kinda had a thing that Andy Kaufman had, you know, where Andy Kaufman like gets so believable that it kind of scares you. You're like, is he really yelling at the audience or is he really antagonizing these people? Or is this a joke, you know? Don't you think? I mean, Yeah, I mean, I, I, watching it, I was thinking, you know, I was looking at you and I was thinking, well, this, this makes sense to me, you know, because you're a, you're really, you're, you're very, uh, you're a very genial guy, you know, similarly regular looking to, um, to Jim Coyle. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I, I can see why people would, would relate to this guy. And then I'm, I'm looking at, uh, Coyle and I'm thinking, Man, you know, like I think that I would accept whatever he told me was true because almost because I would be worried that like if that it I would be sort of a combination of convinced that it must be true and sort of like concerned that even if it wasn't true if I somehow pierced the the bubble of truth that he was creating that he would explode or something. <laughs> Can I can I get a copy of that paragraph? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very true, you know. That's very true. Uh, you know, he he I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, he 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 was so intense. He was so I mean, he would walk in the door and and sort of look like, 
what in those days the typical IBM executive who was like the model American citizen. He was Irish and kind of ruddy complexion and kind of a ordinary looking guy to a certain degree. But then, yeah, this intensity would build up, you know, and he would sweep you into his aura. Um, um, and, yeah, that's what he would do with people. And, of course, Jim Coyle was a guy, he was kind of a harmless con man, but he lived to put people on. You know, this was not just something he did as an act, which was kind of more my thing. I kind of enjoyed being with him and doing all this. But Jim, almost compulsively, wherever he went, if he, if he went with you to a party, you knew he was going to go over and start in on the hostess, and it was going to even get uncomfortable, maybe, you know. And, uh, and um, you know, he was one of those people. Can we have your name, please? Yes, Walter Schwartz. Walter Ozar Manderas, who is a person of medical background here in the Bay Area, has come up with a rather interesting theory. He claims that the head, the actual size of the head, including uh, the current limitations that exist because of the ramifications of the bone structure, the actual size of the head can be expanded to accommodate uh, actually spatial dimension, not only for increased brain power, but for many of the activities in the body which would, if they took place in the head, be more efficiently uh, performed. Would you go along with this idea? Certainly I would go along with this idea if it would serve any fruitful purpose, individually, collectively, or for the good of society. Do you think that people uh, participating in this experiment are going to feel self-conscious? Their heads won't be rounded. Their heads are actually elongated, in some cases uh, two or three times uh, the size of the head as it is today. In other words, it becomes very high and narrow. This is, this is yeah. Yes, uh, they may, some may feel self-conscious and uh, some may even uh, desire it because of sort of a status seekers. Uh, what do you idea. mean exactly by that? Well, they may feel slightly superior that they've gone through an operation and now they have greater potential than the average uh, other uh, citizen. In other words, you think perhaps some snob appeal would develop with the elongated head? Yes, it could uh, appeal to some people in this way that they would have a, an elite society. Through expanding the head size. Would you yourself be willing to submit your head for such purposes? If I thought then was convinced that it would serve any useful purpose, either to myself, uh, individuals uh, collectively, or society as a whole, I most certainly would. And you wouldn't feel at all embarrassed that your head would be elongated, perhaps, as long as your body? No, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't believe I would at this time. If you were staying in France and you had this elongated head, you got a hotel room, and the bed, most of the French people a little shorter than the average Americans, the bed was rather short. Would you, and your, and your head was, was the same size as your body, which would you place on the bed, your body or your head? One section would be drooping onto the floor of the hotel. Which section would you place on the bed? I'd place my head on the bed. And the rest of the body uh, hang over and uh, straddle on the floor or whatever, or chairs or whatever would be necessary. And when the maid came in in the morning, if you were still sleeping, she opened the door, what would she see asleep on the bed? That my head. What what was the what was the appeal of being with somebody like that to you, who who was at the time you know like maybe a little countercultural but otherwise a pretty regular guy? Yeah, uh, I know it was kind of dangerous. I mean, he had such a sick sense of humor. He was so bright. Um, it was just very funny, and um, he was also very intellectual. Um, and uh, you know, he did read 
Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and all, all this stuff kind of drew you in. He, he almost had, like, acolytes. Oh, he didn't have a lot, but there was always one or two other people around that were kind of held in his sway in a weird way, you know? So, but to go out with, you know, to go out with him and, you know, he'd, he'd turn his collar around and look like a priest, and we'd go to movie theaters, and they'd say, oh, Father Coyle, come right in, and, you know, you're, you're just conning... <laughs> You know, somebody uh, at the counter out of a box of popcorn, but there was still something. Um, he just loved playing the part of a priest or something like that. I can't explain it. Just hanging out with a guy like that was was really fun. You know. What led the two of you into thinking that this could be something besides just something that you did as a goof? Yeah, I think we both wanted to, um, you know, have jobs, do something to make a living, you know. I mean, even though he conned his way into jobs. He always had some jobs. And one time he even flew as a co-pilot in a training program for TWA. I mean, he got that far, you know? Um, but, you know, we kind of thought these things are kind of funny. You know, we, we, after I went in the Army, I was stationed in Long Island City, and I lived in Greenwich Village because they didn't have, like, an Army post. I was at the, where they made Army training films, and I went and lived in Greenwich Village in this uh, room, and one day I bumped in a coil in the street. He had come back from San Francisco. We weren't even in touch. but So we hooked up again in Greenwich Village, and, you know, we'd stand on the street corner and try and sell people toasters, or we would go to, you know, weird social events, and we were just having a good time, you know, and we finally decided, well, what if we could go back to San Francisco, be out in the sunshine again, and, and record this stuff, and and do something. We just thought it was so funny. And, and you know, at least we enjoyed it, you know. So that's, that was kind of it. It was vague, but, you know, kind of thing young people do. <laughs> Can we have your name, please? Yes, it's Mrs. Pat Paulson. Uh, can we ask you a question? Would you yourself approve the idea of a commercial agency, the purpose of which is to purchase children from homes and then redistribute these children to other homes on a lease basis for a profit. Well, that might not be a bad idea. Of course, I don't know. I would miss mine awful much. There's a, there's a group here in the city which actually is getting children. We're not sure of the source yet. They're getting children. They have between 50 and 75 children, and they're renting them out to people in the area. Really? Yes. How, how can they do that? Well, uh, what about the parents? They have actually purchased these children from the parents. They've purchased these children. The parents have gone along with an idea whereby the children are turned over to these people permanently. For instance, if somebody wants uh, a little nine-year-old boy in his, in his or her home for a weekend, there's a set fee. Do you approve this? No, I wouldn't approve of that. I think any child away from its own home would be unhappy. Even if it was getting a percentage of the profits from the organization? In other words, if the child knew he was going to get 25% while he stayed with a group of people? Well, to a child, I think the happiness of their own home is more important than any money. You don't, you, you don't think that it might be helpful to a child to have a very commercial attitude in regard to himself at an early age? Well, knowing that he's being leased? Everything is too commercial. This is, uh, this is, the whole world today is too commercial. We are ourselves involved in this agency, and we have two of the children with us today. We'd like you just to meet them and tell us whether you think they're happy or not. Would you do this? They're right here. They're right Fellas? here. Will you meet them? Well, yes, I'll meet them, but I don't think that they could give me a reaction right now. What, what are your names, boys? I'm, I, I'm Ronald. How old are you, Ronald? I'm, uh, 13. 
And what is your name, young? Andy. And uh, we've been sending you around to different homes in the community now for about four and a half months. Would you describe yourself as un unhappy or happy? I, I feel fine about it. I think it's real good. And uh, your little friend here, once again, how old are you? Nine. You have little freckles on your face there. How many homes have you been to in the last three years? About 14. He's been to 14 homes. And you can see, can't you? Wouldn't you say from looking at them, they're happy? Well, they look happy enough. They have a bag of candy. That's enough to make any child happy. Right, exactly. And we've given the candy to them. We're taking care of them. And you well, said you're opposed opinion, to this. No, in my opinion, you aren't taking very proper care of them. They should be home eating a carrot stick instead of a bag of candy. Maybe that's right. <laughs> now, this afternoon, normally, these two fellows, they're actually brothers. Normally, we rent them on a weekend basis for $17 a day. Now, you've shown some interest in them. You think, you think they should be in a home this weekend. Could we let you have them for $10.50? The two brothers, Ronnie and Andy, in your home this weekend? Heavens no. I have two of my own. That's enough. That's a trial. Don't you think if you had Ronnie and Andy in your home over the weekend, you'd be able to determine whether they're happy? Well, I don't see any normal boys standing on a street corner talking to strangers saying that they were being paid money to go live with somebody would be happy. Ronnie, could we ask Ronnie? Ronnie and Andy, would you like to go to this lady's home this weekend? Yeah. And you know it's at the discount rate. You won't be getting your full 25%. Doesn't matter. How about you? Andy, okay. would you like to go into this lady's uh -huh. home? Uh, Ronnie, tell us, what was the last home you were in? What was it like? It, it was a very, it was a very nice home, you know. Uh, some some nice people who who already had um, three children. See, now, they already had children. Uh, could we place them in your home this weekend? And we give them some sedation so they aren't too wild. This is one of the reasons why they're willing to go. I think you ought to be out teaching these boys how to play baseball instead of standing on the street trying to sell them. I mean, one of the really remarkable things about this story is that. Um, the the fact that it happened all in in the early 1960s was very fortuitous because this was really sort of the first period in time that technologically you could do this as anything more than you know running illegal con games that you could do a prank and and document it well enough that it could be something that could entertain others because this was the first time that you know there was actual portable tape recorders among other things yeah exactly I mean, that's a really good point. And, and, you know, we didn't think of that at the time. But, you know, I've been interviewed by, by the BBC. They consider us like, you know, historical figures and, and this sort of thing. But, yeah, for the first time, there were smaller tape recorders, not what we have today, but still smaller. And they were used by uh, mostly private eyes. It was a famous private eye in San Francisco, Hal, Hal Lipskit or something like that. Uh, Coppola's movie, The Conversation, kind of I think was based on his career. But but we went down and we went hanging out with the, hang out with these private eyes at this uh, at this uh, at this store that that had Brooks camera. But they also had in this camera shop they also had uh, miniature tape recorders and and microphones. And we'd be up there with the private eyes and they'd be stuffing them in briefcases and stuff. And that's what we did. And we were kind of the first entertainers, probably. That walked around with this gear in a in a little briefcase. You know, was this? Did you did you actually have a a, a job doing this before you went out and and bought a, a tape recorder that fits in a briefcase, or did you buy a tape recorder that fits in a briefcase in in order to think that you could get a job doing it? No, we bought the we bought the tape recorder. I mean, we we had the tape recorder, and 
and, and this little gear for probably two years before we ever, you know, made a cent. I mean, we just we just bought this thing and started walking around San Francisco. And we walked around San Francisco for two years. Every single neighborhood you could imagine. We'd be in, a, in neighborhoods we didn't even know existed. Things like the Excelsior District. And we didn't know where we were, you know. We would get up every day and just go some a street that was different. They had a bunch of stores we hadn't been in the day before because we'd walk into stores with this hidden stuff, you know, mortuaries and antique stores and printing, you know, printing shops or, you know, just whatever the next store was. We'd stand outside for a second and try and come up with a premise. And if nobody else was in there and the guy was, you know, available, you know, we'd strut in, you know, in our suits and propose something to the fellow, you know. What were you What were you doing with this um, tape that you were recording? When, uh, as a, like, did you have like a, a? Were you creating your own best ofs and inviting girls over to listen to them, or what? Uh, no, we weren't. Um, interesting concept. Uh, no, I, we were just collecting this stuff, and ultimately, we got a contract with. And we would edit them. We'd sit in Jim's house. We had some early editing, you know, splicing tape, which is gone, and razor blades. And we'd put these things together and make little demo tapes and go around to radio stations. And ultimately, here in San Francisco, we got a, a record contract with Fantasy Records, which uh, which uh, they threw us out, though, after about six months. But, um, yeah, you know, we were just collecting the stuff. You know, it was just some dream, you know, that the venture would go someplace someday, you know, I can't explain it. Haven't you done something like this, Jesse? <laughs> Isn't this show like this? Me? Me? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. We just did it. I don't know why. We just thought it would work out. We'll have more with my interview with Mal Sharp after the break. Plus, more bits. Stick around. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I'm Janet Varney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, oh, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment, and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Right now, we're replaying my 2006 interview with the late Mal Sharp. In the early 60s, Mal and his friend Jim Coyle basically invented hidden microphone pranks. They'd roam the streets of San Francisco and talk with random strangers about absurd, hilarious propositions. They were called Coyle and Sharp. Jim Coyle died in 1993. Mal claimed it was in a skydiving accident. Mal died earlier this year. Let's get back into our conversation. 
What were the things like that you created at the at the very beginning? Well, on this new uh, this new box set, these two men are imposters. I have a bunch of unedited early stuff that we did. I found some stuff and some drawers and things like that that had never been used before. You know, it was on these big reels of ten or eleven inch tape, and it would be things like we'd go down in the Marina District in San Francisco. There'd be an apartment for rent. You can hear us kind of walk in and. One of these tacky kind of landlords, you know, lived in the building, you know, like a supervisor, yeah, one of sure. those guys. And we would, you know, the hidden tape recorder would be clunking away. We'd be walking up the stairs with him, and he'd show us the apartment. And, like, in this particular thing that's on the, in the CD, um, we, Jim then explains that he doesn't really care about the rooms, that it's the closets. He lives in the closets, and, and uh, he doesn't want any light in the closets, and so then the guy is all involved with, well, why don't you come in this room? This is kind of a dark room, and maybe you could get a closet in here you'd like to live in, you know, things like that. Um, you know, wandering into, you know, apartments for rent. Um, we did a lot of things in mortuaries where we walked in and told the mortician that Jim had had an unsuccessful life, and he, Jim wanted to be buried and dug up again. To, to like renew <laughs> his life to start again and 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 all the tape recorder would be on the on the briefcase on the guy's desk and it would all be kind of tense and and uh you know he'd say well who would be coming to this funeral and it was always several of our friends and one animal <laughs> and, and the highlight for us would be when the guy would say what kind of animal and it was it was always wolverines or cattle or some, some thing that would have to be tied up that might attack somebody that probably wouldn't, uh, you know. So it'd be this whole seed of taking place in some graveyard where you'd be burying coil and digging them up and there'd be, you know, wolves trying to get at them and, you know, stuff like that. And it would be, it would be places like that, antique stores, you know, where we get a lot of things involving death for some reason, but antique stores where we, uh, our uncle had died and uh, without signing a document um, that would have given us a lot of money. And if we could dig him up and bring his body into the antique store, that, that particular store had the kind of furniture that was in his home, he'd be comfortable. And we, could, we had a way of getting his arm to move and sign <laughs> the document, you know. Could we bring the body in that night? You know, stuff like that. We, they would call the cops a lot. You know, we'd end up, jumping on buses to get away from the sirens and things. There's tape of you and you guys getting arrested on, on that third CD that you mentioned. Right. Yeah, that's another thing. That particular tape was lost for years, and, um, and we had signed an agreement with the judge when we were going up for trial that we would never play it anywhere. But I figured since it was 40 years later. Yeah, I mean, we had been out in the avenues in San Francisco and we'd stop some guy, some guy in a suit. He was walking toward his car. We asked him if we could, if we could borrow his car for the weekend. Um, we wanted to go <laughs> over to Marin, go out to eat some outdoor restaurants and things like that. And we'd bring it back on Monday and, and he didn't want to lend it to us. And, you know, cause he didn't trust us. And of course we always would explain that wouldn't an experience like this, if, if we, he got the car back on Monday, wouldn't he realize that he could trust human beings and it would be a very learning and growing experience for him? And, you know, 
very beneficial. <laughs> All the time, of course, if we were talking, we were growing more suspicious, deliberately so. Um, <laughs> so it turns out, so he wouldn't do it, and he got in his car and he drove away, and we walked down the street, and we were interviewing some kid on the street corner, and the cop car pulled up. The guy was in the back, and it turned out he was a, a cigar salesman or something. He'd been collecting all his money. He had a lot of money on him, and he thought we were setting him up to rob him. You know, So he got the cops, and they grabbed the briefcase out of my hand with a hidden tape recorder in it. So it recorded the whole arrest. And this was in the days before the Miranda thing where they had to tell you rights. And ultimately, we were in a cell, and they called me out because they suddenly discovered the tape recorder, and they didn't know how to turn it off. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, we had a trial. They had a they had a, a jury. It was jury selection day at the Hall of Justice in San Francisco, and they called us in the back room. And the judge said, "This is ridiculous. And uh, if you sign this waiver and never play this tape of the arrest again, you know, you guys can go home." And we were happy to do that. It was this big car. No, this particular car. Just a plain, ordinary, simple. Just a smaller car, this would be. What would be the chance of, uh, when you finish with it this evening, of taking a spin in it? <laughs> Rather uh, hard. Uh, I, uh, I live way down in Millbury. Well, we, if we could go with you now, and then when you get done tonight, we could just go up for a ride. I'm pretty busy right now. Why don't we get you home on a bus or something like that, and can we take a spin in it? It's just not very ethical, that's all. I don't. What do you uh, mean? Uh, what do we look? Uh, <laughs> no. Evil or something? No, just that it, uh, it's a company-owned car, and I'm not allowed to let it on. Are you intimating we're going to steal the car? No. Do we... Let's forget the company policy. You sit in the back seat, and we'll take it out for a spin tonight. No, thanks. You no. can bring somebody with you. No, that's yeah. all right. Do we drive over the Golden Gate Bridge now? No. Why, can I just ask why, so we'll understand? Well, just, uh, I told you, it's against company policies. I'm sure if you go right down here, they'll uh, let you drive any one of their sample cars if you're interested in buying them. Yeah, we wanted to drive one that somebody's already had. Yeah, well... We really wanted to drive your car. We no, saw no. you, and then we saw the nice little car. Could we have it over the weekend? No, I'm sorry. I told you, it's against just all companies. Just Saturday and Sunday. No, I'm sorry. No? Get the I really don't. Say, excuse me, you want to rush? Yeah, I have to, have to go in there. You walk coming down the street here frequently enough? Yeah. Okay, we'll see. You're Thanks a lot. Well, Take it easy. Here the police. There we go. Take your hands out of your pockets. Get in, get in. By the way, when you started the car, we wanted to tell you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's rather unusual for you guys. Perfectly right, but we'll do the explaining at the police station. <clears throat> we wanted to tell you. Two gentlemen ever uh, been arrested before? No arrest records here or in any other state. Where is your home at? Here in San Francisco. We save a lot of time. Well, well that's right, but we're talking to station. One thing we'd like to make it easy. Please use a precision instrument. I think we should have a right to tell you what this case is. 
were you were you learning anything doing these over these i mean before you were even before you were even on the airwaves you were doing this for for two years were you like refining techniques yeah i think we we developed a lot of premises a lot of rapport um yeah it was a lot of chops that even to this day uh is very useful to me you know creating things premisizing having concepts in your head before you walk into a a situation we learned a lot you know human nature who would be the good subjects that we had to get people with good voices uh, people that spoke up we love to get truck drivers proleys as we call them good proley types you know but uh, you know get these truck drivers to yell and scream at us you know construction workers uh, so it was a good kind of human interest learning experience uh, you know for us how did you um how did the two of you dissolve your partnership um that's that's a good question jesse <laughs> we We had done it the television pilot that you were mentioning earlier um the imposters for a company in l a We finished that we couldn't get another radio job and uh the partnership was getting a little frayed much as a lot of partnerships and marriages and things begin to get you know, a little bit of pressure on them. Uh, Jim was a kind of very, very eccentric guy, extremely paranoid. It was hard for me sometimes to deal with this. And uh, But anyway, he was married. I was married then. We were living in West Los Angeles. And um, one day I went over to his house to kind of do something, and no one was there. And the landlord told me that they had left, Jim and his wife Naomi. They'd gotten in his car and taken off. They'd gone to New York. And that was the last time, well, I didn't see him then, but I didn't really talk to him again for 18 years. You know, he just split. And it was over. And it was kind of a relief in some ways that it was over because it, it was getting to be a bad marriage, you know. I, I mean, I can only imagine that, you know, this relationship must have been kind of seriously intense. I mean, I, I honestly, I can't imagine anything dealing with the man that I see on the television screen as not being intense. I imagine like eating a grapefruit with him would be intense. Well, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, and I think when we were both single and we were just, you know, drifting around San Francisco and sitting on curbs and eating sandwiches and 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 having these adventures, it was a great adventure, you know, it really was a great adventure. I, I think in a way why I've been attached to this stuff my whole life and maybe even put out this box set. I could have let this stuff go a long time ago, but kind of almost represents some kind of youthful exuberance and stupidity and intensity that you can only have when you're 24 or 23, you know? And, um, and, uh, I don't know. I don't know where we started this question because <laughs> I'm lost in a lot of different thoughts here. But uh, but uh, yeah, ultimately it was it was probably too intense. You know, it was too intense. You went on to basically make your career out of doing this kind of thing, and you eventually sort of became known as the sort of the man on the street guy, right? Both both locally in the. Uh, both locally here in the in the or excuse me not here in the bay area i live in los angeles now both locally in the bay area and uh nationally um was it how is it different to work 
to be working by yourself for for so long after having this kind of catalyzing, you know, five or ten year relationship with a with a partner? Well, you know, I um, I sort of left doing the thing with him. I went to work kind of with a company in L.A. that created radio commercials, and I really enjoyed that work. We were creating, you know, it was in the middle of the 60s. The Beatles were happening, and sound got really interesting. The Moog synthesizer arrived, and and uh, this whole thing sprung up, and I loved creating this stuff and making it, but I kept getting calls for man-on-the-street interviews. And um, so slowly I started taking these things, and developed a style that wasn't as antagonistic, um, you know, as intense as my thing with Jim. And ultimately, I kind of fell into my own style, which was a little more friendly, a little more drawing people out, bringing out their humor, having a good time with them on the street. And um, so it was rather different, but still very enjoyable to me. And compared with other jobs I could have had, even the one I had at this production company, it was great being outside all day, you know, walking around with a tape recorder. It was I liked meeting people and engaging them and having a good time with them. So it, it turned out pretty, for some weird reason, nothing I ever tend, intended to do in life. It turned out to be a really nice career. Mal Sharp of Coil and Sharp from 2006. I want to send you off with one more classic Coil and Sharp recording. This is Wolverine football. Say, what is uh, what is this called? What? The games they play here. It's football. You participate in the game? You are yeah. a coach? No, I used to play. That's about it. And my playing days are over. We are from Hanseatic Zoological Leave. I ask you this question. We have uh, with ourselves a group of animals that we have brought from our country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would like to have them do things that people can do. You know the game. You know the football. Would you be able to take the animals and train them to play and make a team of them to play these boys? Animals? Yes. Yeah. What kind of animals? We have some animals that you would, uh, all right away, say, uh, fierce. We have wolverines, which are very fast. You see, we are keeping them very hungry so that they remain vicious in the game. Yeah. How big are the wolverines? They are as big as, oh, how do you say, a great thing. But the wolverines we have all weigh over 300 pounds. We have taught the wolverines foot soccer. Mm-hmm. We have one wolverine soccer team now. Mm-hmm. We have taught the wolverines to run on their two hind feet. But now we wish for America to see the athletic wolverine mm-hmm. playing as a human beings in an American sport. Baseball, this is uh, out of the question. There's a lot of good coaches around, assistants. And they, I know they'd be, uh, they'd be all eager to, to work with Wolverines. It's something that nobody ever done before. It'd be kind of a challenge. Could we tell you that one of the Wolverines running on his hind legs has beaten us in a foot race? How do they throw passes? How do they center the ball like that kid's doing right now? How do they, how do they get through their four legs and throw it back to the dog behind us? This we have, the King Wolverine, who teaches us is by example. Mm-hmm. He is huge, he is most fierce, and he would be the best, probably. He has been elected the captain by the other Wolverine. Wolverines against humans in football. This is what we wish. Now, what would be bad? You say before, trouble with centering the football. Well, they got a center between the legs, right? Who does? The, the, the uh, center. Yes. That'd be the Wolverine, right? He'd have to center that ball back between his four legs. Let us bring to you, to your home, one of these animals. You keep it with you. I live in the city. Yeah, you keep it. Yeah, but I haven't got no backyard. No backyard, an apartment. A wolverine in an apartment? You could keep those that turn out best. I live in a five-room flat and no backyard. 
and no back porch. Where do I keep all the team? We have the Wolverines on a chain. We have them on a chain. They are linked together. You just bring them in. You have a small uh, spike in your living room, and you will not care that there may be some bodily harm to you because no, they this is what are they going to do to me? Bite. We know this. That uh, something like this takes time. You don't overnight take animals. You don't take beasts and make them uh, athletes. If you could train them so well, we have then a game for they play these uh, boys here. Well, Wolverine will tear them apart. You say they were uh, vicious. You you keep them hungry. Yeah. All right. Then they gotta they gotta. They have to uh, either tackle the player or touch the player. Who, who tackles? Who would the Wolverine would have to grab them, or either you know, either with their paws or with their jaws. Would you suggest? Especially if the guy had the ball and the Wolverine trying to get him, he'd probably take a hunk out of his fanny, but he'd catch him. What would be the first uh, fundamentals you would teach the Wolverine? What first, you, you have to teach him how to stand still and line up. Yeah. That's the first thing. Yeah. Then what? Then that's it. They can get that far. Then I'll teach him the rest. Coil and sharp. Mal Sharp passed away in March. He was 83 years old. I can't begin to express my gratitude to Mal for the kindness that he showed me through my career from when I was a clueless 19 or 20-year-old until the day he died. But to be honest, he was just that kind of guy. I think that one of the reasons that when they revealed it was a prank at the end of every Coil and Sharp recording, which they did every time, the person almost without exception laughed was because Mal was the kind of person who would make you feel comfortable in any situation, even when he was pitching you Wolverine football. Anyway, thanks, Mal. You'll be remembered. Why don't we read the credits over one of Mal's recordings, his music recordings. His band was called the Big Money and Jazz Band, and they were a mainstay in North Beach for decades. Take it away, Mal and company. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. Uh, here's an update from Jordan Cowling, my colleague's home. She and her roommates threw a clue-slash-clueless party at their house where they dressed like the cast from the movie Clueless to play the board game Clue. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and the aforementioned Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. Our special thanks this week, not only to the late, great Mal Sharp, but to his brilliant daughter, Jennifer Sharp, who is a public radio colleague of many, many years and put huge amounts of effort into preserving her father's legacy, without which none of what we just played would have been possible. So thank you to Jennifer. She's a wonderful lady, and I I know she's hurting because she lost her dad, but... We loved him too, Jennifer, and thank you. You can keep up with Bullseye on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 